China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Yasheng Huang, the Epoch Foundation Professor of International Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management. Today we'll be discussing his forthcoming book, The Rise and Fall of the East, Examination, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology in Chinese History and Today. Yasheng, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jude, for having me. Before we start our discussion of the book, I wanted to ask if you could give us a, a brief intellectual biography. I'm, I'm curious, your writing, as this book demonstrates, covers such a wide range of topics. You've done amazing work on China's transition from early reform to state capitalism. In this book, you cover just a, a, such a wide range of issues. How did you get into the field of study of Chinese political economy, politics? Any early influences on you, professors, papers, books? Um, what really shaped your thinking on China? Well, what shaped my thinking was most profoundly China itself. I grew up in China, and I happened to be in China around Tiananmen, uh, June 4th. And I was working uh, at the World Bank at that time. And it was the most interesting time that I have spent in China. Since then, I go back, you know, before COVID, I would go back three times a year, four times a year. But there's no comparison between the kind of, I was there in 88, 89. There's no comparison between that. And, and, and the later visits and trips to China, the, my, my later trips to China were a little bit more technical, more specialized. But the eye-opening experience was, was the June 4th Tiananmen event. I was a little bit too young for cultural revolution. Uh, so the, the, the kind of, I read about that, that period later. Uh, but the June 4th, I experienced that. Myself, and that was really the shaping impact. It turns out, only rec- I only recognized that impact many, many years later, when I was working on my uh, book, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics, and I began to realize that uh, academics in the U.S. have a good understanding of China since 1989, uh, but we had poor understanding of of that period. Uh, so I began to pay attention to that. And that provoked an interest in me in history. You know, that was a little bit modern history, and historians will not consider that as history. But to a uh, professor at business school, something that happened 30 days ago it constitutes history. And so I began, in my, in my other book, I began to look at the documents and really... Uh, try to collect data about that period, and I found that period to be fascinating. Uh, so, so that kind of was my early entry into history. And this book, obviously, is a much more broad than 1980s. And, and I'm not trained as a historian, so I definitely don't really have a uh, comparative advantage in, in historical studies. But what has happened in history is there have been a lot of data sets 
that has been constructed to study history. Uh, so as you know, if you read this book, uh, and part of the book is based on uh, three very detailed uh, data sets going back to history, one on technology, one on uh, imperial rulers, and one on senior officials in the Chinese dynasty. So I, I don't claim to be a historian, but at least with the aid of data, we can look at history in a different way. Just a question that's a little unrelated, but somewhat related. I'm thinking about, you were just talking about this formative experience of being in China during a remarkable time of expansive public discourse and debate, um, civic and social activism, just such this burst of energy that, you know, I think if, if anyone's read Julian Gewurz's new book on the 1980s, just captures such a remarkable time of a closed society exploding open um, with this just rush to modernization. This is a little bit of a stretch of a question, but I'm, I'm actually just reflecting on what, how do we get people interested in China now when travel to China is more difficult, the political system is being more closed. I'm imagining the future, you know, Yasheng Huangs or, you know, students who are coming into MIT to do their PhDs and think about research careers in China. How have recent developments the kind of epistemic closing that we're seeing, the political closing, how do you think that's going to affect the field of new entrance into the field of study of China? Does it mean we're now doing this much more like Pekingology, you know, and not as much in-country, you know, fieldwork? And if so, how is that going to distort or shape, you know, the sort of research projects people are working on? Yeah, definitely it has made China studies much, much more difficult given the, it's not just COVID, right? So uh, Xi Jinping's Communist Party has made access to China much more difficult than before in terms of doing surveys, in terms of doing um, academic exchanges. Um, it is a magnitude more difficult today than it was compared with 10 years ago. The saving grace, and it's probably a little saving grace and not a big one, is that increasingly we have data. And we have social media data. The Chinese government itself puts lots of things online. And they are not a perfect substitute, but they are something, right? So just, just imagine during the Cultural Revolution, you try to do the same thing without access to China. You couldn't do a thing. Whereas now, at least you have, you have some data. For example, I'm one of the three co-principal investigators on a large-scale project on food safety in China. And we have digitized uh, data on food regulations in China. And we are writing papers about how different bureaucracies function based on, on data. Uh, you know, we visited China before COVID to do this project, but a lot of the work that we do now is is data driven. So, I think that we have to acquire these new techniques, take advantage of the data that that are either released and or uh, constructed. Right. So you have to construct some of these things, and like text data. Uh, you have to construct them into uh, into data for analysis. 
So that's something that we can do. It's not a perfect uh, substitute. It's not very easy to do certain topics, like you know what CGP is going to do. I, I think that's very, very difficult, right? Um, but in terms of other topics, you can still get quite a few insights by this data approach. Can I ask something of a devil's advocate question? Because I guess the issue I'm trying to get at is how much are we losing by not being able to spend as much time as openly as we could before? So what I'm thinking is, in the case of the work that you're that you're doing on data sets, one of the critical aspects is you personally being there to interpret it because you have a very intimate understanding of China. I'm imagining a Chinese researcher who is constructing a data set on, let's say, uh, political attitudes towards China in the United States. And they construct a data set of the number of bills on Congress that mention China. And they start coming up with some conclusions about this. But because they don't have the chance to go to Washington, D.C. and meet with staffers and understand that you know, some of the bills are mere symbolic positioning. Others are substantive. You know, many of these won't pass. How they would be missing the larger story, even if they had a data set, and it was a really good data set, it would be the, the interpretive context around the data set. That's all a long way to go to, to say that I wonder for generate future generations that don't have as much in-country time, Data is hard to know. It's hard to know what you, how to interpret data with without some of the contextual awareness. Am I wrong in thinking that we're really losing something? Or not? Not, not at all. I, you are absolutely right about that. But the issue is is twofold. One is that this is not a situation we desire, right? This is a situation that we have, and so we, you know, maybe Jude, you in Washington D.C. can change. Things, but I definitely cannot. Uh, so, so that's the kind of thing that we accept. So then the issue is, given that is the the, the deck that you were dealt with, is there something you can do short of giving up the whole thing, right? So that's that's kind of my way of looking at this. Definitely, it's not ideal. There's no question about it. But the second thing is that it really has to do with how you train the next generation of Chinese scholars. If you train them to believe in blindly the sanctity of the data and you know data will tell, that's going to be very problematic, right? So to the question you posed, a, a good researcher would think of asking the question, yes, I have a good data set, but it's a good data set about what, right? And, and, and so that's a, that's a, not, not many people have that, right? So they, 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 they believe that's all you have. And, and then once you think about and think of that question to ask, then you need to find out other ways to increase your contextual understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve, right? So that would be my advice to my, I mean, I definitely have that advice to my students. And, and knowing the shortcomings, right, it is actually incredibly important. And don't be blind about data. I'd be interested to hear what the parallel discussion in China is on this. 
you know, and, and do they see gaps in their understanding of the U.S. and and how are they trying to uh, address some of these? It's also another separate issue, but I, I wonder on some of the data gathering capabilities the Chinese state has. I wonder what the quality of the discussion is on interpreting interpreting all this data, and are there is there sufficient recognition of you know the power of data, but also some of the limitations of it. So I have not seen similar attempts from the Chinese side to digitize American policy, American politics. Um, they may be, it's very much kind of a, almost like uh, elders' council, right? So a group of experts and you draw from their wisdom and ask for their opinions. And in China, you have the additional problem of the difficulty of articulating your own opinion, your, your own independent opinion. I think that's a bigger obstacle in China toward a, a more nuanced understanding of the United States. And, and the other obstacle is a lack of a more empirical approach. I mean, we try to be empirical. Sometimes, you know, it's very, very difficult. And sometimes we get lots of things wrong. But I don't criticize the effort. Right. Whereas I don't really quite see similar efforts from our Chinese friends in, in China. Making a clunky segue, I want to talk about your book, which it's hard to capture the scope and scale of it in a, in a short podcast. So readers who or listeners who, who find this discussion interesting will have to wait you know, a few months to early next year and, and uh, for, for the full book to come out. But the title is one of those nice titles that actually tells you a lot about the thesis, which is the rise and fall of the East. And the East here is an acronym for examination, autocracy, stability, and technology. So this coming into a illustrious lineage of books that look take a broad sweep across a, a wide domain of issues, but looking at the resiliency of the Chinese state, the undulations of Chinese power, undulations in Chinese innovation, and what are some of the factors shaping shaping this? So I think it's just an initial question. Can you tell us a bit about how you arrived at this formulation of these four factors, the East, examination, autocracy, stability, and technology? How did you come to this as being the vehicle to investigate this this broad historic sweep about the Chinese state. I'm assuming you didn't start with the acronym and work backwards. That's right. So I started with E, the examination. And, and, and there was a long trail of academic papers and books on the civil service examination system in China. The more recent work is much more data-driven than the previous work on the civil service examination system. And I wasn't the first. Uh, There are other scholars who have published in really, really high-impact journals about a civil service examination system. But I co-authored a paper with Claire Yang, uh, who is a professor at University of Washington. And we used a data set to look at not so much to look at the particulars of the civil service examination system, but to look at the political functions of the examination system. And the main idea of that paper and the main finding of that paper was that the civil service examination system was very clever 
in terms of doing two things. One is that it is very good at recruiting high quality human capital, right? So that's something that we all know. But the other thing is that it has been very, very good at preventing political opposition, right? So if you sort of compare China with uh, Western European countries, historically speaking, right? So the West, you have the emergence of democracy. The democracy was a result of essentially use contemporary language power struggles, factional struggles between the king, between the nobility, between the landlords, between the aristocracy and bourgeoisie, right? So basically, democracy emerged from these struggles and conflicts, and they decided, okay, let's reach a compromise, and let's reach a compromise about voting, about balance of power, about separation of power, things like that. And that's basically democracy. What China did was using the civil service examination system to prevent these factional strives and conflicts, and then to establish the autocratic rule of the emperors. And that transition, I showed this in my book, took place around the sixth century when the civil service examination system was introduced, right? So institutionally, the so after I did this paper with Claire, uh, more and more I was thinking about what are the larger implications of this way of thinking about the civil service examinations for China, right? So there are just certain things that you can sort of think about, right? So politics, the economy and and society. And you know, the economy, that's a pre-modern economy. But what was interesting about China was China had a very, very uh, substantial achievements in technology. But then it collapsed, right? And the other thing about China was it had this long duration of autocracy, right? And then it has a long period of political stability. Define not in terms of protests and, and those things, but in terms of the ability of the regime to replicate itself, right? And, and China has a remarkable, you know, if you think about Xi Jinping today, short of Xi Jinping's daughter replacing him, lots of other aspects of today's system are very similar to the imperial system, right? So the, the replication, the stability part of it, is a very, very prominent feature of China, right? So, so think about autocracy is a very prominent feature. Technology is a very prominent uh, feature. And stability is a very prominent feature, right? So if you put these four things together, right? E, examination, A, autocracy, S, stability, T, technology. That kind of is the kind of the foundational pillar of the book. And I, pin down the examination as a determining factor of the other three letters in the formulation. Yashan, can I ask, can you give us just a brief thumbnail sketch of the examination system? But I also think, can you dig down a little bit more on how it rewired 
and how it led to some of these outcomes? Because you could just read a description of it and see it as a fairly simple mechanism for determining who can serve you know, in, in the court as an official and who can't. But you're arguing there are some pretty profound knock-on effects. So I guess describe what it is and then just dig down a little bit, if you, if you would. Thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. So let me approach this, your question in two ways. One is to start with some facts. And then the other is to talk about the mechanism. Again, so I, I don't mean to be uh, blind about data, but there are certain things that without data you cannot know, you cannot show, right? One of the things is that before 6th century, there was way more ideological diversity than after the 6th century. There's just, there's, there's just no, comp- so the, almost like a two countries, right? So before 6th century, there was Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism. And what is very interesting there is that many historians believe that Confucianism as a state ideology was established in the Han Dynasty, right? So that, which ended in 220 CE. So the assumption is that China had ideological dominance, monopoly of Confucianism, as early as first century, and then basically continue all the way to Qing Dynasty. With data now, we can show that's actually not true, right? And some of that is done by Chinese historians. And uh, a few of them constructed a data set on the share of Confucianist documents of all the court documents. What they found was that before basically 10th century, in 11th century, the Confucianist documents accounted for, you know, 30%, 35%. The rest was Taoism, Buddhism, and all of that. And we have also compiled a data set on prominent historical figures, right? Some of them believe in Confucianism, some of them believe in Buddhism, some of them believe in, in Taoism. The dominance of Confucianism didn't happen until about 10th, 11th century. Right? So let's start with that fact that China used to be quite ideologically diverse. Right? And now what happened? Right? So, you know, obviously, other people may say lots of other things happened. I pinned down the civil service examination system. But I think it's important to think about the function of the, and, and this is getting to your question. Essentially, what is the mechanism, right? So the civil service examination system is not like SAT. It is a very scripted examination system. It tests one school of thought, which is Confucianism, and it forces all the test takers to adhere to one particular format of the examination. Right. So there's, you have to write an essay in a very rigid format. Right. And civil service examination system, like SAT today, you cannot cooperate with others. Right. So you do it all by yourself, by, uh, on your own. And then as a test taker, all you receive is the right answers from the state. You cannot have your own independent answers to the questions. The answers are predefined. Your job is to memorize these answers. 
and the preparation, uh, uh, only available to boys, by the way, and, and men, the preparation started sometimes at the age of three, at the age of four. So if we use the psychologist's term, imprinting, right? So I grew up in China. There's no reason genetically I like Chinese food, right? I could have liked spaghetti, but the, my imprinting was Chinese food, and you essentially for the rest of your life, that's basically the favorite food that you have. There's no genetic reason. There's even no objective reason why that should be your favorite food. Just think about you grow up with one school of thought, with one you know, format of the examination system at the age of three. And by the way, unlike SAT, the civil service examinations, uh, exams, you can take it for the rest of your life. And the success rate is so low, you have to take it multiple times to move to the next level. There are three tiers, right? So uh, there are famous stories in China that you start taking the first one at the age of 10, at the age of 11, and then you get to the finish line by the age of 65, right? So essentially for the rest of your life, starting at a very young age, you are exposed to one idea repeatedly, and essentially you don't really have the capacity even to process a different idea, right? So it's much more than exam the way we think about exam. We call it exam because there's really no, because the way it is conducted is like an exam, right? And if you succeed, you're set for the rest of your life, right? You're, you're going to get a very high level government position, prestige. So the upside is tremendous. Just think about this process hijacking the attention, the time, and the efforts of 50% of the population from 6th century all the way to early 20th century. And by the way, because you start at the age of three, at the age of four, you need the mothers to be able to tutor your sons. So the mothers have to adopt the same ideology, right? Also, what I show in the book is that over time, between 6th century and 10th century, Confucianism as the curriculum for the exam got narrower and narrower and narrower. So think about these two things happening. The ideological space narrowed in terms of different ideologies. Before you had three or four, now you have one. Within this one ideology, it got narrower and narrower over time. So what the Chinese historians show is that beginning about 10th century, 11th century, the Confucianist documents began to account for 70% of the old documents. Basically, all the other ideas were being crowded out, right? including, I would argue, ideas about democracy, ideas about economic growth, and ideas about uh, uh, independent thinking. All these other ideas were being crowded out. So, so I would argue the difference between Europe and China is not that China had one ideology and Europe 
had multiple ideas. Europe used to have Christianity, Catholic Church, very hostile to science, very hostile to Protestantism and, and other ideas. But there was space for ideas to grow in Europe, uh, principally, I think, because Europe never had this kind of intellectual instrument that China has developed. Yashan, can I ask a question? This may be a stupid question. You've just focused on the content of the civil service examination that because it was through all this this system focused on producing people who were just inculcated in one you know, one thread of, of intellectual or ideological discourse. I, I have a stupid question. In terms of design of the civil service examination, do we think that's what they were trying to accomplish? Or it actually wouldn't have mattered what the curriculum was, ha- having individuals spend expend such effort to achieve a position in and of itself would have vested them in the regime. Right, even if they had just been writing the same sentence over and over again, it is the fact that they you weed out you weed out people by who's willing to expend time, effort, and resources, and it is that process. It's like if you want to become a Navy SEAL, you go through Buds Week, where they just basically punish you, and how they punish you doesn't really matter. They could do it five hundred different ways, but it's the it's going through the crucible that sort of inculcates you in this club of, of elite? Uh, Jude, let me say I agree, but I also disagree, right? So I, so I agree in terms of design. Actually, the Chinese emperors were explicit about the political function of, this, of the exam system, which is that they didn't trust the recruiting people from the nobility class and they didn't have the control over the bloodline. So they wanted to institute a system over which they have control. And one Song emperor actually said that explicitly, that now I know who's coming in into my court. And, and, and the other th- detail about the examination system is that there's a, uh, at the end of the process, there's an uh, interview right, by the emperor. By the emperor. Uh, and so... So the emperor uses that and, and other things to assess whether or not you're loyal to him or you're loyal to the, uh, to the ideology. So there was an explicit political design with, uh, with the system. They definitely did not design the system to say, oh, gosh, we got to have technocrats, right? I mean, so that, that, that's not how they thought about it. it. The political control was a big part of it. In terms of kind of a little bit disagreeing with the part of it. There has to be certain ideologies that, that fit with this format. You cannot teach democracy in this format because it's kind of a self-defeating ideology, right? You, can't, <laughs> you cannot passively tell the students, oh, give your own creative and independent answers and then still keep the, the, the format as it is. So, so there's an inherent inconsistency between the standardized test and use the modern terms, right? Liberal arts education. And and this is actually the critique that a lot of educators have about a test-driven approach as opposed to a liberal arts approach. 
which is based on discussion, which is based on debate, which is based on the fundamental notion that that there's no one single truth, right? And how we determine the truth depends on logic, depends on data. None of that is compatible with the civil service examination system, right? So, so only it doesn't have to be Confucianism that I agree. It can be Catholicism. It can be something else, right? But that particular ideology has to be autocratic ideology rather than democratic ideology, because the democratic ideology basically is a self undermining the entire setup, right? So you can't really quite fit that ideology with its format. And that's why in the US, right, in the West, we critique the test-driven approach. Well, we still use it. We use it because we have other methods too, right? So we don't teach our students only to be good test takers. You know, we also teach them critical thinking. We teach them uh, um, how to debate, right? Then, that, uh, then, you know, we don't worry about test taking because that's just one part of your educational exposure. Just imagine that's all you have, right? Then it's going to really affect how you think about the world. Rachel Ja has a has a a paper from a few years ago, I think, where she and I think it was uh, I think Yingbai had a, a joint paper where they argue that the abolition of the examination system was a key contributor to you know early 20th century political volatility. I suppose in some way that is very supportive of your thesis that the regime perpetuation and stability was a knock-on effect of the examination system. And, you know, one of their arguments is the end of it was led to a pronounced period of, of instability because you had, uh, you know, sections of the elite who were significantly affected by I- its examination. So it's a very good paper. It's published in a very good journal. I agree with it. But there are two kinds of stability, uh, and they tackle one. So the, the one source of stability is really kind of between the society, the, the commoners, the public, the citizens, and the state. And their paper deals with that, right? So once you abolish the examination system, then people lost hope. They, they, you basically, you don't have any upward mobility, so they rise up. But the other source of stability is the stability among the elites. In terms of how autocracies fail, the data are very clear. Most of them fail not because of the society conflicts with the state, but because of the conflicts among the elites. Right. So we have to think about that stability first, and then think about the social stability. If you just look at the macro data in terms of when the civil service examination system was introduced and then look at different indicators of uh, stability, there's actually very little change in terms of peasant rebellions. Before a civil service examination system was introduced in the 6th century, you know, there was this level. After that, it was still that level. There's very little change. But dramatically, the conflicts among the elites declined dramatically. So I would argue, and not to disagree with that paper, I would argue the first order effect of the examination system is on the elite stability. 
It is making elites more loyal, more compliant with the autocrat, and that is probably more powerful in terms of explaining the stability of the system over such a long stretch of time. The peasant rebellions actually is a myth that the in part propagated by the communists because they they came from a peasant movement.、Uh, they talk about how peasants、uh, change history.、Uh, actually, the peasants didn't change history except communist peasants.、Uh, and there was a earlier time, two hundred seven BCE, when the Peasant uprising destroyed the, the the Qing Dynasty. That's true, but almost every other case of peasant rebellions、uh, didn't really change regimes. They they created instability, but in the end, it's really the elites that came in. One of the things you'd mentioned earlier in the conversation was that you know there's a lot in Xi Jinping's China and in the Communist Party that would be familiar. If 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 a a Mandarin official, you know, did a Rip Van Winkle for three hundred years and woke up, they would recognize elements. What are the trying to trying to pull the discussion to legacies in existing elements of China's political system today, or how the the Communist Party is is perpetuating a, a, a relatively stable regime? What what are the linkages to the kind of governance architecture of China's you know pre twentieth century? Political system. So there are kind of big picture features, and there are some smaller ones. Let me start with the big ones, and and I can be very brief because these are the easily recognized features, right? One party rule, one ideology monopoly, right?、Uh, one autocrat.、Uh, these are shared features between the communist era and the imperial era, right? And I do have one chapter that talks about one big difference, and that difference has to do with succession.、Right? And the imperial system had a more stable succession arrangement. Right, basically, the oldest male son succeed the emperor. It's a very straightforward rule, and that was a very important source of stability from one emperor. To another, to another, and, and this is where the CCP system has some difficulties because it's not a hereditary succession system, and it is、uh, much more open-ended, much more conflict-prone, and surprises and certainties. Right, so, so, so the Twentieth Party Congress <laughs> was all this hopeful about the third time. And so, basically, what Xi Jinping did was he basically the way to think about this is that he postponed the succession decision, right? Rather than tackling it directly, and so essentially, you postpone the problem to another for another five years and maybe for another ten years. But you know, as we know, that you cannot postpone that forever. So that's one source of. Instability that the imperial system was actually better at solving than the current system. But let me talk about some smaller but equally important features. Well, one is, and this applies to the whole era of reforms as well as 
before they reformed, the communist system was uh, has been extremely metric driven. If you think about the civil service examination system, the way that you place the officials is according to your placement on the exam system uh, on the exams. Right? It's a very straightforward hierarchy, right? Rather than emperor saying, oh, you should be the minister, you should be the deputy minister. It is really your exam score that makes that determination. There is a similar feature to this, and, and a lot of people have studied the reform era, you know, whether GDP is uh, the factor that determines a promotion and demotion. Now under Xi Jinping, uh, it's uh, political loyalty. And they are actually constructing measures of political loyalty, right? Uh, including how many times you use the app and, and things like that. So it's a very metric-driven. And some people will say, oh, this is a meritocracy. I mean, I don't... Th there's a difference between meritocracy and metric-driven system, right? So you can actually make lots of things into metric. It doesn't mean it's meritocratic. You can make class struggle a metric, right? During the anti-rightist campaign, Mao famously said, oh, among intellectuals, 5% uh, of them should be writers. Right? I mean, that's a metric-driven system, but there's nothing meritocratic about that, right? Class struggles and loyalty to the leaders. You can actually develop metrics to measure and to reward uh, people according to these uh, performances, right? So the Chinese system today has a remarkable similarity with the imperial system in that particular uh, aspect. But then the issue is, in one chapter I, I talk about this, right? So then the issue is, you know, exactly what measure you use as a metric matters a lot for the quality of the system that we're discussing, right? So I would argue under Deng Xiaoping, when they use the GDP, you know, GDP has many well-known problems as you know, and as many of us know. But the question is, if they don't use GDP, what else do they use, right? And then we have to make our judgment on the basis of the alternative metrics they can come up with. And that's not a very good list, right? Class struggles, the account of the personality, infighting, all these. These are actually much worse as compared with GDP. You can criticize GDP all the way you want. But we need to recognize that if they don't use GDP, they use these more horrible things, right? So, so I argue in my book, actually, that's why we look back at the GDP era with uh, nostalgia. And that was a good old days of reform era. Such is the richness of the book and the discussion. We're at minute 47, and we actually haven't really talked about several of the other pillars. I wonder if we could maybe just spend you know, a few minutes, and I know that's not fair to the discussion, but I want to at least touch upon it so that, you know, we get readers sufficiently or listeners sufficiently interested in buying the book. But could I, could I just ask, you know, for the thumbnail sketch of your thesis for what describes, you know, what is not a linear progression of technological innovation, but you see this undulation, what, what explains why China appears technologically dominant and why it appears technologically stagnant. So I do want to get to technology as, as an important part of the book. So what is very interesting about the, the undulation 
is mostly a function that uh, in pre-modern times, technology and science were basically individual activities rather than institutionalized activities. So until 18th century, we don't really have cumulative science, right? So which is that you do science on the basis of the prior work. And then once you do that, what you see is this exponential growth of knowledge. So China was doing these kind of fluctuations, and that was similar to every other civilization before modern institutions of technology and science. But what is interesting about the Chinese technology is that it peaked very early. And I mentioned sixth century before, when China introduced the civil service examination system. Chinese technology peaked in sixth century. Ever since then, it was basically a downward trip. So first uh, in the Tang and Song Dynasty came several notches down, and then basically it disappeared completely in the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, right? And so then the question to ask when you look at the data like that is, is there any connection between the civil service examination system and the larger impact the examination system had on bureaucracy, on the state, is there any connection between that and technological development, right? So my answer in the book is yes, there is a connection, right? So if you sort of look at how technology develops, how science develops, Science and technology develop in the environment of independent thinking, creative thinking, and the ability to challenge authority and individual freedom. Right? So the simple thesis there is that before 6th century, China had personal freedom, had ideological diversity, had the kind of creativity that you can think about things and approach the world from multiple perspectives rather than from one Confucianist perspective. And that was a good environment, a better environment for technology and for science. So that's one factor. And the other factor has to do with the support by the state. And so it may be a little bit counterintuitive and people may argue this particular point argues against the earlier point about independence and creativity and freedom. And, and the second point is that the state has to support science and technology because doing science and doing technology is a very expensive proposition. In modern times, that's easy to understand, the collider and, and, and all of that. In the ancient times, think about, think about it this way. When you do technology, the product and the idea you come up with doesn't have an immediate economic payoff, right? I mean, you invent something, it, it's not going to give you, you know, a lot of money to do that. And then you spend time doing that rather than growing rice, right? So you can die if you're not being supported to do science and technology. That's why Da Vinci had Medici, you know, had many, many supporters. And uh, the, in the Renaissance period, many artists had sub private patrons because otherwise 
just painting a picture is not going to give you the kind of money that you need for being alive. And this is where the state came in in China. Compared with other civilizations, the Chinese state played a much bigger and earlier role in supporting science and technology. Not, not consciously, not as a policy objective, not as a white paper, uh, not as a National Science Foundation, right? What is very interesting, and then we develop data on that, is that over 70% of the scientists and technologists were employed by the government. And by the way, similar and maybe even a higher proportion of uh, writers and poets were also employed by the government. So the agenda for the government, for Chinese state, is very interesting. The agenda for the Chinese state was always to monopolize quality human capital. Whether or not you do science or do poetry, they don't care, right? But the effect of that was that essentially the, the opportunity cost of doing science and doing technology were lowered, right? So, so what we see is that that function of the state, supporting function of the state, was very substantial before 6th century. After 6th century, it took a dive, but not like a huge dive, right? It moderated gradually uh, over time. So, so there was still support, moderate support, and the reduction of the support didn't quite explain the degree of the technological collapse, right? So then what's left as an explanation? It is the ideological monopoly. It is the contraction of ideological freedom and ideological space, right? So, so ba the basic argument is very simple. You need two things to do science and technology. You need a state support. You need a degree of freedom, right? And after the sixth century, you lost all the freedom. You still had a little bit of the support, but the support was not as much as before. And so that's how I explain the collapse of technology. It doesn't take much of a leap of imagination to imagine what your view would be of some of the constraints on China's ability to innovate today. Because while the state support is there for sure, and probably if you read the 20th Party Congress work report, more resources will be channeled into preferred technologies. Some of the other environmental characteristics that you just mentioned around political ideological are, are going in the other direction, the wrong direction. If I can ask you, I mean, this has very much been a debate of China's innovative capacity, given some of the political constraints, you know, with this historical minded study, as you look ahead to the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, what is your prospect for China's ability to achieve some of the objectives Xi Jinping has laid out, especially in light of, you know, the strong prioritization to do, to do this precisely to, you know, sort of push China beyond the middle income trap, realize some of the great power objectives she has? Are they moving in contradictory directions by both channeling more state support, but decreasing the space for ideological sort of flexibility? So, Jude, I would actually describe the situation more um, negatively than, than you just did. 
let's go back to prior CGP era. One way that I explain the success of China in technology and science was international collaboration. And there are plenty of data in support of that point. So if you look at Chinese scientists publishing high-impact journals, many of them were done in collaborations with foreign scientists. Here's the key thing. right? So you can sort of view that collaboration as collaboration among uh, people right, in terms of their capabilities. So I, I'm not a scientist at MIT, but I talked to scientists at MIT. And, and, and what, what was very interesting before Xi Jinping was that the U.S. was not spending enough money on science and technology. And institutions such as MIT had to source money elsewhere. China was one of those countries, and there were other countries too, but China was one of those. So you have the state support, right? So the state support. But also, you need the freedom. So the Chinese scientists, when they come to the U.S., essentially they have access to the academic environment in the U.S., right? So this is where the, the kind of creativity and the personal agency, personal freedom conditions come in, right? And the Chinese state, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was done by design, but if you are a rational autocrat, that's exactly the system that you want to design, right? So you, you kind of count your fingers. You, you say, okay, there are certain expertise I want. There are certain expertise I don't want. What are the expertise that I want? I want data science. I want chemistry. I want biology. I want physics. What are the areas of expertise I don't want? I don't want political science. I don't want law. I don't want free market economics. I don't want journalism, right? So what do I do? I definitely do not reform my own universities because if I do that, then you gave scientists more freedom, but you also gave social scientists more freedom. So what do I do? I keep tight control over my academia, but then I open a door to a system that does have academic freedom. So that's how I kind of interpret and explain how the international collaborations have contributed to the advance of science and technology in China. And, and by the way, this is true in the enterprise sector too, right? So you collaborate with Taiwanese companies in semiconductor, you collaborate with American companies in terms of software development. It's basically collaboration, right? The reason why I will paint the picture more negatively is the following. The international collaboration is no longer an option. Right. That, at least that option does not exist at the same level as it did before. And the other, my bet is that the state support will come down. The reason is very simple. Chinese economy, Chinese economic growth is not the same today as compared with before. We're not even talking about zero COVID, right? Just the secular decline of the GDP growth and the previous governments in China could afford the support 
because the economy was booming, private sector was supplying tax revenues, real estate tycoons, no matter how you hate them, you know, they generate revenues, right? And export contracts and investment money from Wall Street and all of that. You need incredible resources to do science, right? And, and now you do this alone at much lower GDP growth rate, right? And that means that the level of support, I doubt the level of support is going to be the same as before. And related to that is that you have to focus. But here's the problem, right? A lot of these things are interrelated, right? So if you look at biology, if you look at life science, yeah, so, you know, the current leadership in China doesn't attach much importance to platforms, e-commerce, and, and fintech. Worldwide, the best data scientists are in the e-commerce companies. Amazon, you know, Facebook, China less so, but still, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu made a lot of advancements in data science. A lot of these results of the data science can be applied back to hard materials, to uh, diagnosis of the disease. So you cannot possibly say, okay, we just do this stuff and then we sacrifice the other stuff, right? So it is not going to work. I mean, if you look at the track record, the semiconductor track record has been terrible, has been terrible. So I, you know, obviously, you know, I can be totally wrong. I, I, I'm not optimistic. I'm not at all optimistic. I drew my conclusion not on basis of all Western ideology about the importance of, you know, academic freedom and all of that. I drew my conclusion from China's own history, right? So I'm not being an ideologue. If there are people who disagree with me, show me your data, and then we can have a conversation. But you, people cannot possibly say, I come to this conclusion because of my ideology. I was just thinking, as you were talking about that, Yashan, I was thinking, Lauren Brandt, University of Toronto, had a great paper it was a couple of years ago. I think it was China's great boom as a historic process. Uh, and he just had this great line, which I'm, I might butcher, but it was... You know, looking at this project of trying to channel state resources towards, you know, preferred technologies, which you just indicated one of the challenges of trying to do that in a surgical fashion. Lauren Brand has this great line where he said, you know, this will give you isolated breakthroughs, but um, not sort of economy-wide productivity boosts. And I think it was something like he said, this is going to lead to a Soviet-style outcome in which... You have the occasional Sputnik, otherwise illuminating a galaxy of mediocrity. That's a great line. I agree with Lauren completely. And Lauren has done work to show that the productivity contributions to GDP growth have been terrible. Right. So it has been especially terrible in the last 10 years. I mean, not all of it, uh, to be fair, uh, was uh, under Xi Jinping. I think it began to decline under Wen Jiabao and uh, Hu Jintao. Uh, because of the the big investment program uh, in the in response to the financial crisis, in an era where you tout technology and science, you just don't see it in the GDP growth, 
right? You don't see it in the contributions to GDP growth. There's something wrong. There's there's something wrong. And the problem is that it's going to reinforce the the economic stagnation once you have a slowdown of the economy. Then you can still support science in the way that Soviet system supported science, but that's not going to lead to a very happy outcome. You know, that strikes me, you know, Yasheng, as the kind of very tragic path that China's on under Xi, because I would imagine that the failures of delivering robust productivity gains through industrial policy do not cause Xi Jinping to take a dra- drastically different course. I bet it causes him to, you know, like we just saw with the purge of the semiconductor industry, you saw, you know, you saw senior officials and, and at, at uh, Tsinghua Unigroup, you know, purged because I think Xi Jinping's view will be, if this isn't working, it's because we're not doing it well enough. We've got the wrong officials in place. You know, we're not putting enough money. So I feel like, you know, this is, it's going to be doubling down on a failed strategy rather than conceptualizing, you know, a new policy approach to this. And I I think there are some in Washington, D.C. who like the idea of slowing Chinese growth. On a very human level, I find it very tragic because lower Chinese productivity means Chinese citizens and young kids without the access to the the quality of services, goods they need, without job opportunities. I mean, it's just a truly human tragedy for an economy not to grow. It's not just a intellectual parlor game. And and so that's what strikes me about what you were just saying, which I find so deeply, I find very convincing, but also deeply, deeply discouraging and, and on a human level, really tragic. Because if we can, if I can bring it full circle, as you saw in the 1980s, the country is just teeming with energy and creativity and capability. And of course, you see that and you you yourself an, a, a shining example of in the right institutional system, you know, the right institutional arrangement where talent and creativity are celebrated, you know, China's number one. But this is a sad tale of a set of political decisions being made and, and no real Obviously, we've we've passed the threshold for political, you know, for for succession transition, and I just find that such a such a tragic, you know, course of events. Yeah. So I just connected to that point. I've been kind of negative on the civil service examination system, but in my book, I was very affirmative of one aspect of the exam system. So there's a lot of psychological research to show that repeated exposures to reading, to literacy, can introduce changes in the brain, rewire the brain, you know, in terms of memory, in terms of mental processing, in terms of uh, cognitions. And those capabilities are huge asset in terms of economic growth in terms of technological development, in terms of science. And so this is not saying, you know, any country is better than than others, but because China had that system, right, it incubated these capabilities among its population. When you have a combination of that capability and the right policies and the right environment, the results are magical, uh, magical, magical, right? 
economic growth and entrepreneurship, science and technology. Right now, the tragic thing is that for purely political reason, the leadership is reversing these conditions that maximize this kind of incredible legacy that the country has. Right, and this is tragic at a human level. Yeah, you absolutely right. I mean, this at a human level, this is tragic, and、uh, if it continues for a number of number of years, it, the effects are going to be very very dire. Because it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to go that way. It really, really doesn't have to go that way. I sometimes imagine an alternate universe where Xi Jinping identifies this objective of. Um, rejuvenation of creating China into a modern socialist state, but instead of the course China's on now, he understands that truly making China a great modern socialist power is addressing, you know, the significant development gaps between rural and urban areas. Right? It's reforming China's tax system. And and taking these state resources and channeling them into building a functioning, effective minimal welfare state, you know, it's it's celebrating entrepreneurs like Jack Ma. Importantly, so you create, you so you have young kids running around China who want to be be the next, you know, Jack Ma or or Pony Ma. And I think in a in a real way, if Xi Jinping was fundamentally interested in national rejuvenation, you know, of creating a modern socialist state. You know, he'd be reading Scott Rosell work, Scott Rosell's work, and he'd be saying, "How do I? I've got this massive underutilized human capital talent pool in rural areas that have substandard access to education, nutrition. You know, we've got a we've got a a semi-functioning healthcare system. I'm going to address these and and truly make China sort of a, a build back better with Chinese characteristics." But I do think you know that is the choice in some way that Xi Jinping still faces: is do you want true, organic, robust rejuvenation, or do you want this narrow national security state version, which, as you've laid out very convincingly, is leading China in such a tragic direction? So, Jude, but I think in his mind, he sincerely believes that he is rejuvenating Chinese nation. The problem is that. The way that he thinks about this issue, it kind of depends on flawed understanding of what rejuvenation means. What he is thinking about is a unified empire, marching on the same tune, same order, right? Doing everything the same. Okay, so China did have that, and that was a disaster. China lost technology, lost science. Because of that, and China could have launched its own industrial revolution, but it didn't because the politics was like that. When China was not like that, right, Com- more competitive, more ideologically diverse, Chinese technology was developing. China was inventing, right, many many things, right. So this kind of particular rejuvenation. It's a fundamentally flawed reading of history, and this is really just because there's no freedom to debate, right? To pre- to to present an alternative view of the history, then people kind of and this is not just Xi Jinping, by the way. A lot of Chinese leaders and even some 
intellectuals believe that the, the high achievements of Imperial China are these big, big empires, right? Rather than the, the more competitive uh, kingdoms and, and, and more free period. And the other thing about uh, Alibaba is Alibaba probably has done more in terms of alleviating rural poverty than many government programs, right? So they linked the rural producers with urban uh, consumers. Pinduoduo has done exactly the platform economy has been the gift to China in terms of dealing with rural urban issues. There are other problems going on, but those problems have nothing to do with the platform economy, right? I will start with the household registration system. I will start with that, right? I will start with underinvestments in rural education, as Scott, uh, as Scott Rizal has, has documented, under provision of access to public health. I will, I will deal with those issues. So I don't argue with the goals. I do argue with the techniques and, and tactics. Yashrung, this has been such a rich conversation that uh, what is normally a 30-minute podcast is now an hour and 15 minutes. And just to folks listening, I mean, I didn't even get, I got to about 4% of my questions. So that's more of a ringing endorsement for just how much insight Yashrung brings to the conversation and and how rich this this book is. Yashrung, it was really a pleasure. Um, I really just, I, I could sit here and listen to you for a very, very long time. Uh, but can't afford MIT tuition. So unfortunately, I'll, I'll have to take reading your prolific writings as a substitute. Thank you so much. This book is is fantastic. Um, and I think it's going to have a, a huge impact on how we think about China's past. But as this discussion has indicated, everything you talk about in the book comes back around to how we think about the current regime and, it, and its future. So highly recommend this for anyone who's interested in in thinking about where China goes next. So thank you, Huashang, and look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Yeah, thank you, Drew. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.